Welcome back, everyone. This is the Modern Life Podcast. This is your host, Tabby. Again, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Modern Life Pod and on our website, modernlifepodcast.com. If you have any questions, you can email us, modernlifepod at gmail.com. Today, we're going to be talking about The Scarlet Pimpernel, the first book in the series, as well as the 80s and the 30s adaptations. My expert for this episode is writer Sarah Wallace. You can find her on her website, sarahwallacewriter.com, on Instagram at sarah.wallace.writer, and on Twitter at dial s for sarah her book is called Letters to Half Moon Street, an epistolary Regency romance. You can buy it in print, ebook, and audiobook format. Without further ado, let's get on with the show. We're going to be talking about our modern thoughts and then dive into the Scarlet Pimpernel. I'm far too embarrassed. you insist? The Scarlet Pimpernel. By Sir Percival Blakeney, Baronet. No, 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 that's just the title. <laughs> they seek him here. They seek him there. Those Frenchies seek him everywhere. Is he in heaven? Or is he in hell? That damned, elusive Pimpernel. <laughs> Welcome back, everyone, to the Modern Life Podcast. I have Sarah here with me today. Sarah, how are you doing? Doing great. How are you? I'm good. All righty. Let's get started with our modern thoughts. What have you got for us today? Well, I actually, um, I hope it's okay if you go first, because I think my modern thought might piggyback off of yours a little bit. Is that oh, okay? interesting. Okay, yes. I had told Sarah that I was going to I was gonna rant about the... Um, <laughs> All the abortion stuff that's been in the news lately, but I, I feel like Roe versus Wade in the United States has been restricted for so long, and it's been on everybody's radar for so long, especially um, in the red states, that yeah. to me, it's, you know, it feels like everybody's talking about it now, but this has been going on for a very long yeah. time. And I've seen a lot of things online as to how um, reproductive rights are women's rights and also how it affects people of color, but I hadn't really seen how it ties into disability and that just might have to do with yeah. the people I follow. So that might be my mistake. Um, but I was th listening to an interview with an advocacy group where they all represent people in the United States, but also represent people in other countries where abortion rights are even more punitive or don't exist at all, meaning that even if you have um, a miscarriage, you could be under suspicion of having gotten an abortion. Um, so those God. poor women are now also, you know, need legal aid and trying to combat that. So not only did you have like a miscarriage, but now you also have like a lawsuit so, on top of that. So ridiculous. Don't. <laughs> and um, that made me think of a friend of mine who has recently developed a rare autoimmune disorder um, and mm -hmm. that disease, it, there are so many horrible things that happen to you with that disease, but one of them is that you are more prone to miscarriages and that you can't carry a, a pregnancy to term. Um, and I was just thinking of how how that affects people who have these kinds of disabilities or who have physical disabilities and how if they need an abortion, would they be able to get 
the care they need and you know even if they have to travel yeah. to another state that's traveling for her is so very hard you know what if that is something that she would have to go through which it's not she you know she lives in a place where it's totally fine but I, all these scenarios were just um going through my head and if if you're pro birth you've probably turned this episode off by now but I just <laughs> en- I just encourage you to not form an opinion on this issue with this yeah. tunnel vision of morality and to really keep in mind like all the other women's experiences and other people's bodies experiences that might not um, coincide with your own like not everybody has a magical beautiful pregnancy even if they want to (laughs) but that was kind of that was kind of my thing just thinking about disability um go ahead what were you going to say to keep with your your thought too um it's horrifying too because it's i've seen a couple of states have been considering or at least kind of floating the idea of like making contraceptives difficult and like to acquire like harder to acquire and it's like very i don't know nefarious (laughs) feeling that like it's not even that you are it's like forced birth but it's also like making it harder to even do precautionary measures to avoid being pregnant yeah it's it's odd right yeah uh so my modern thought is kind of a piggybacking off of yours in a way. I'm thinking about how I think as a society and a culture, there's this perspective that bleak and gritty stories are more realistic and stories that are hopeful in theme or are optimistic or lighter type of stories are unrealistic or naive. And I feel like that is a false dichotomy, I guess. Mm -hmm. For me, at least, what moves me forward in every part of life really is to have hope. And like right now we're living in a capitalistic hellscape and rights are being stripped away or about to get stripped away. And so it feels very bleak, but people who were marching yesterday and have been protesting people who keep writing for office and people who keep returning to the polls and go vote because this is how we need to get out of this. But we have to have hope in order to move forward, whether that is, being motivated to take action um, and to, you know, mobilize and, you know, make sure we still have rights and that other people still have rights. And whether that's creating and writing stories or, you know, having children, whatever it is, there is, I feel like everything kind of comes back to uh, hopeful, hopefulness that I think is integral to human nature. Mm. So I think that the idea that hope in stories and happy endings in stories is naive and unrealistic is an unfair cultural perspective because I think that it is actually just as important to life as it's just as integral part of life as Mm -hmm. hardship. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that's, that's the perfect way (laughs) to uplift after my very sad (laughs) modern thought. (laughs) I know. I was like, she told me that. I was like, oh, perfect. That will tie into mine too. (laughs) (laughs) no that's true and um yeah i really love that that's a really good reminder um and just to keep in mind that there is always something that we can do even if it feels uh small on an individual level Mm -hmm. yes but i think we're ready to go into the scarlet (laughs) pimpernel which you had chosen Um, and if if you hadn't chosen this book i would still be living my life in black and white and never (laughs) experience joy (laughs) i'm glad to have brought this into your life (laughs) 
I'm just going to give a really quick summary. So The Scarlet Pimpernel is a novel from 1905 written by Emma Orkshi. I'll just read the summary from Wikipedia. I didn't make my own for this one. So the book is set during the Reign of Terror following the start of the French Revolution. Sir Percy Blakeney is the hero and protagonist, a chivalrous Englishman who rescues aristocrats before they are sent to the guillotine. He leads a double life, apparently nothing more than a wealthy fop, but in reality a quick-thinking master of disguise. He's known by his symbol, a simple flower, the Scarlet Pimpernel. Um, I would just add to that explanation that two more important characters are Marguerite, his wife, who married him for love, but now thinks her husband is a simpleton because he always pretends to be so shallow. Their love is rekindled when she eventually finds out his secret. And then there's the zealous villain Chauvelin, who threatens Marguerite with the arrest of her brother Armand, unless she helps him in a scheme to catch this enemy to the new French order. And now I need to know, how did you first encounter this? Is this something you used to watch as a kid? Yes. So I honestly, I think I watched the movie adaptation before I read the book, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so grew, I grew up with the 1982 film adaptation with Anthony Andrews, Jane Seymour, and Sir Ian McKellen. It was in the 80s, so it was before he was knighted. But um, And I was obsessed, and I watched it. And then I think when I was in middle school, I finally read the book. I watched it, I don't know, like in a formative part of my life. <laughs> it's the first movie I remember kind of hyper-fixating on and watching mm. it every day for like a month. <laughs> so I was very obsessed with the movie and then the book, and then eventually the book series. So... So have you read the whole series? Yes, I've read the whole series oh twice, I think. I'm about to read it again with a friend of mine because she's only read the first book. Um, most people will know only know about the first book. Um, but it was a series of, I think, 12 books total. You don't get the romantic tension of the first book, so it changes pretty dramatically from a romance to just an adventure. Not just, but an adventure series since primarily focused on Percy and his little random adventures in France. There are random other characters who become main characters sometimes. Um, so there are still romances in this series. Um, but he is usually a side character because it's just about him being perfect <laughs> and awesome. <laughs> so they're very fun, though. <laughs> the romance is something I didn't expect at all. Um, and even the audiobook cover has like a like a rapier like a sword on it but there aren't any like swashbuckling fights really in the first book no i know and there aren't really any sword fights in the series that i can remember like there's a a point with a duel where like there i think percy challenges chauvelin to a duel in one of the books but it never actually ever happens oh that's Um, funny from what I can recall, that never happens. Another thing that doesn't happen that happens in both of the movie adaptations that I recommended to you, the 1982 version and the 19, I think it's 34 or 35 mm-hmm. um, version with Leslie Howard. In both of those movies, he escapes with a fake execution where like uh, he escapes in both of those movies by having all of his men disguise themselves as French soldiers. And then they shoot him and Chauvelin and the audience are both duped into thinking that Percy's been killed and then he hasn't. Surprise! That never happens in the books. Makes sense because it's a very huge production for the benefit of one person. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It makes sense it never happens, but it's just a funny thing that both of the movies do it. It's like, aha, this is this big moment. And it's never actually, at least from my, I could be wrong, but from what I remember, I read through the series specifically looking for, is this the one where he has the fake? Nope, no, no, no fake execution. It's just in the movies. It's very funny. 
that I had a question about because the 80s version straight up steals so much from the 30s version. Yes. Like yes. Marguerite saying, we don't even speak the same language, like it's specific language. lines. Yeah. yeah. Or Percy teasing Chauvelin about his cravats. That wasn't in the yeah. book. Even Percy saying, sink me is from the 30s one. The thing with the firing squad, as you just said. And so it made me think, was this based on the play? Because the novel Wikipedia mm. tells me was first a play and then it was a book and I could not find this play. Like I, I searched for so long online. I could not find the text. Uh, I have no idea if, um, I just find that so odd as a screenwriter that somebody would just be like, Oh, I'll just take everything from this. Other movie. <laughs> I know you're right. Yeah. I haven't actually read the, you know, the read, read the play either. I had never thought of that as being the, the uh, source of the firing squad thing. I do know that the author kind of considered one of the actors who played Percy to be like the gold standard of who Percy was, was this one actor who was lost to time and we'll never know how he performed this character. But, um, which I think is interesting that she was like, Oh, he is perfect. No one else can be Percy but huh. him. Um, <laughs> but I do think that it's funny too. Sometimes it feels like a, like an homage to it. There, the cravat thing is a running joke in the series. Where, oh, like, interesting. Okay. Cause it wasn't it was, in the first book. Yeah, it's it's a running joke in other books where, like, at one point Percy is in prison <laughs> and teasing Chauvelin about how he can't dress well. And it's, like, a very funny thing where he's, like, about to be executed and he's, like, oh, well, just insulting him randomly. So um, <laughs> so that's a bit of a running joke where he kind of randomly does it. The, the cravat thing, I think, is specifically with the movies. Um, hmm. But, yeah, it's pretty gotcha. funny. Uh, so there was also the 1999 Richard E. Grant version, which I could not find. And you said that's not one of your favorites. So now I'm curious yeah. as to why, because you've seen it. I have seen it. Um, I watched it when like, I was in high school or something. And um, like Richard E. Grant did a really good job of playing um, Percy. The problem I had with it is the reason I like the Scott Pimpernel as a hero is that his strength is in his like outwitting people and he's a master of disguise and that's the part that's fun I, I, like the way they, they did it in the mini series is he saves people by like riding in on horseback with a mask or whatever and like, uh. i think them and so it's this really very different take on what type of hero he is which is still interesting but it's not the fun of it for me was reading the books and trying to figure out which of these random background characters is actually Percy in disguise. And, um, you know, how is he going to trick everyone? Is he going to trick the reader? Is he just going to, because sometimes it's kind of like a where's Waldo thing where you read the books yeah. and it's like a man with a, who's hunched over. Oh, that's Percy. A man with very broad shoulders. Oh, that's Percy. He had very large hands. Oh, there's Percy. Like you can catch him because she uses the same, <laughs> the same descriptions every time. But for me, that was part of the fun of how he operated. Um, so having him like, steal through the night and take people on horseback and they ride out right. of Paris is very different. Um, so that was the part that, that irritated me. <laughs> I haven't revisited it. So maybe it's better if I go in with the expectation of it's not going to be accurate, but that was the part that bothered me was that, that particular yeah. take. The, the thing about the disguises is interesting because in the book, um, at the end, he gets away because he disguises himself as a Jewish man. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's very cringy um, and yes. uncomfortable to very. read because he's treated... It's very obvious to the reader that he's the person in disguise. And he's treated yes. by Chauvelin, the Frenchman, in this uh, very derogatory manner. Um, mm -hmm. And then at the end, 
you know, he kind of reveals himself to his wife and he's like, oh, I knew this would work because the French hate Jewish people so much. And I was like, oh, that's not quite enough to make this all okay. Yeah, like that one no, line, like um, it, it was too much set up. Uh, <laughs> like I'm uncomfortable. Yeah, it, but, and the author would be like, oh no, I'm not anti-Semitic. It's yeah. French. And it's like, well, you had to write uh, it that way. Did you, <laughs> did you have to write it like that? So it, it agreed. It's very, very cringy. Every time I get to that part, I'm like, oh man, this is, it's just, it's not a good part of the book at all. Yeah, it's an un unfortunate It's aspect. also, though, not surprising, giving, you know, it's the early 1900s when this book was written, yeah. so. Uh... <laughs> yeah, no, agreed. It's it's terrible. Um, I, I read it through this time, and I was like, oh, God, I, I'd forgotten how just how terrible this part of the book is. So I think I wound up skimming to the reveal. <laughs> That's one of my favorite scenes is when they're, they're chatting on the ground. <laughs> uh, yeah, that part's really terrible. Uh, in the beginning of the book, I also love how it keeps asserting that these poor nobles are victims of, of the reign of terror. They never did anything wrong. Like all the right. peasants just revolted. Like, why would they do this? Like, it, it was just right. funny to me because it's written so like over a hundred years later. Yeah. And Marguerite does bring some nuance into that because she at first agrees with the new, you know, French way of doing things until everybody starts yes. getting executed. And also the 1982 version is uh, way more nuanced. Yeah. But it's just so funny to me that the book is like, these the poor nobles, they never did anything wrong. Like, this came out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very weird that she's so like, it's such like royalist sympathies in a book. <laughs> it's very bizarre. Agreed. It's and it, that's the way throughout the entire series, really, is that, like, the the French uh, commoners are always, like, these bloodthirsty villains, and then the <laughs> French aristocrats are these poor, delicate creatures that really were just trying to live their lives. Which is <laughs> Not that they were killing people, you know, they were horrible. No, not at all. It's, it's pretty wild. I do like that in the 1982 version, where I think it's Suzanne mm -hmm. makes a comment about, like... We did bring it on ourselves with all our arrogance and excesses. And like Percy's like, what? as an expression of like, she's not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like, nice little nod of like, yeah, they, they weren't actually completely innocent in this situation. But. but what I do like about, I don't know how historically accurate this is because I don't know that much about um, French history, but just the description of France as a spy state at the time. And the immense stress that it has living under such conditions and like everybody's watching everybody, you know, I'm always fascinated with that, like East Germany or, you know, just, just living in the yeah. society where you're always like questioned and watched. And yeah, I, I don't know entirely, I, I think to an extent that probably, I don't really know that much about the French Revolution, despite being obsessed with this series. <laughs> um, but I, I do know that, like, eventually, I think uh, Robespierre was also executed. So mm -hmm, it was very much mm -hmm. it turned in on itself with the the way the executions worked. They kind of started to run out of easy targets and just started, yeah, you know, them each other. That's a good point. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Another question I had: I love how in this story, really, no one dies. Not even, <laughs> not even the villain. Are there yeah. more deaths in the later series? Uh, I'm trying to think. Not really. Chauvelin lives. He's the villain in every single book. Um, <laughs> every book. He fails every single time. So <laughs> it's pretty incredible that the French government is like, nah, sure, we'll give you another chance. Oh my god, times. that's hilarious. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I think the only time people die is if they're like side characters who are like French villains who are side characters who you know they're, they're going to be executed for 
being stupid, but like um, for letting the scuffle mouth slip through their fingers. But I don't think anybody else ever dies. Like I, I don't love think that. any of the good characters ever die. Yeah, it's a very <laughs> very light read, <laughs> despite the fact that it's taking place during the French Revolution. She gets into like somewhat. I don't want to say graphic because she's actually never graphic, but she does get into occasional things of like describing different torture systems that they used. So like it is pretty grim in certain parts um, in terms of health. But again, it's also very much a look how terrible they were to these poor royal people. Yeah. Um, these poor aristocrats. But um, so she does that. But actual characters, I don't think any actual characters ever die <laughs> in the book series. Uh, there's even, uh, one of the, if you don't mind me telling you a spoiler about one of the... No, books. go ahead. I want to know. Uh, it's one of my favorite sequels because it's very weird. Is It's called Sir Percy Hits Back. And the main character is Chauvelin's secret daughter. And she, like, she's hidden away in the country and she falls in love with an aristocrat, of course. And then she and the aristocrat are going to be executed and Chauvelin can't reveal that he's the father. So he's, like, trying... It's this fascinating book because he's trying very desperately to get the scuffle girl to save her but he doesn't want the scuffle girl to know it's his daughter because he's convinced that uh. he knows that he won't save her and so it's this very interesting like dynamic of Chauvelin trying to kind of help Scott Pimpernel well not <laughs> at the same time it's very very weird but it's uh but that one is an interesting uh one in terms of he eventually has some amount of complexity, but also not because I think it's not the last book in the series. So the very next book in the series, he goes right back to trying to kill him. So it's like, it's very weird. But oh my God, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. When um, Sir Percy and Chauvelin meet in the opera books and the book, uh, in mm-hmm. it says Sir Percy extends two slender white fingers to Chauvelin. And to me, that was just like a perfect moment. And like, how annoyed would you be if that's how somebody shook your hand? And like, it's so, it's great. So condescending. I know. And like, he never gets his name right. Like, I think that's a running joke where he always calls him like Schobertan or something like that. Like, he just completely mispronounces his name every single But that's one of my favorite things in the Richard E. Grant adaptation is he mispronounces his name every time he calls him Shuffalon. And he's like, oh, Mr. Shuffalon every time. <laughs> Very cute. <laughs> also in the Leslie Howard version, I think when he meets Chauvelin, he says, uh, oh, the French, how they how they speak that unspeakable language of theirs is a mystery to me. And it, it's just, it's like a compliment, but not like, it's just great. <laughs> the, one of my favorite parts in the book, too, is when he, which is not in any of the movies, but when the, the I think the Vicomte de Tournay is meeting Percy and like, trying to stand up for his mother insulting Marguerite and he's like trying to uh challenge Percy to a duel so they can satisfy their their honor and like basically says all this to Percy and Percy's like how on earth did you learn to speak English (laughs) that's his reaction and it's like it's it's so great that is a great scene speaking of languages I wanted to go into the the accents of the 1982 version (laughs) Because they're just they're just wild. You have these people who are supposed to be so French, yet they yeah. they don't speak French. They don't have any. They don't have any accents. They don't have any French accents. And then there's even like an Austrian character who they keep telling me is so Austrian. He has like the poshest English theater <laughs> accent. And and I just love how this version's like. You know what? We're gonna have all these characters from different European nations, and we're not gonna acknowledge 
any of them. Like, we're just going to do our English. I know. I think the only actor who had any kind of sort of maybe accent was the actor who played Armand. And he doesn't really have a French accent, but he has like a bit of a lilt to his accent that could kind of maybe (laughs) a French accent if you listen hard. But not. It's just like a slight slightly not as british sounding <laughs> oh my god it's it's just so funny to me having these people say how how super french they are and you know <laughs> these english yeah. accents yeah i really want them to make a movie adaptation where it's kind of like i think it's the movie the red violin where they everyone speaks their actual language and they just have different subtitles for oh my god everything. you're right i hadn't thought I about that movie in a that. long time yeah yeah I would love more movies to do that where it just naturally goes into whatever language is taking place at the time and the the audience has to adapt would be very cool. (laughs) Yeah. I will say even though Jane Seymour does not have a French accent, her her cadence and her diction and her voice is so pleasant to me always. I wish she did audiobooks because she's such a proper actress like when she's on the screen she's on the screen like you cannot help but look Mm -hmm. at her yeah she's phenomenal she's probably my favorite my favorite version of marguerite because she's gorgeous and she's uh charismatic and yes you're right she's like the way she talks is just so captivating it's like everything she said you just want to you want her to be in all of the scenes And she's gorgeous. She's just so pretty. So that's also nice. I will say, though, that in the film, Percy falls in love with Marguerite because of her beauty. And I actually loved how in the books, it's because of her wit and her sharp mind. Yes. Which is something they changed. Which is like, okay, that's fine. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's more of an insta-love thing in the movie, which I like that they show their courtship. But uh, you're right. It is nicer that you you get an idea of him falling in love with her being clever, which is a, a... when it's considering the fact that you you know he's smart, like she thinks he's stupid, and everyone thinks he's stupid, but like the idea of a super intelligent guy falling in love with a woman mm-hmm. who's also very intelligent is a, an appealing an appealing pairing. Yeah, there because in the book the story starts out with them already married and she's already mm-hmm. so disillusioned about it all, and then they have there's a scene in the garden that just broke my heart where they try to make this connection, but he he's like I gotta go, I gotta save people, but he can't. He can't say that to her. And then when she finds out and follows him, she has to wait out the storm to get across to France. And you feel that tension and her worry. And you just want them to get back together so hard. And I love second chance romances. And it was ah, just heart wrenching. I know. And like the fact that she has to choose between like the brother who was like her only family for most of her life and her husband that she's finally gotten to like understand who he is and like she has to choose between the two of them is it's never it's hard every time to read that that is the thing you lose in the the sequels but it's i I do love that in the book it's so good Um, yeah but one of my favorite scenes is not in there which is fine you have to make these choices for adaptations but it's when marguerite tells sir andrew to bring her to Percy and him he says oh it's too dangerous and then she says oh I'll just go alone then just her yeah. her sheer determination and like I have to get to my husband mm-hmm. like I have to tell him I love him like ugh, I love that yeah Sir Andrew uh in the books is so cool I love I think one of my favorite parts of, of Sir Andrew in the books is where he I think it's towards the beginning of the book when they're at the fisherman's rest and he sees Percy and Marguerite walk out and it's like because he started to fall in love himself, he's the only person in the room who realizes that Percy is like heartbroken Hmm. as well. And I, I love that moment of like, 
the empathy that he he gets because he's beginning to be more sympathetic to I don't know other people's feelings, which is a little ridiculous. Yeah. But like it's such a very cute moment of of Andrew being kind of the more empathetic and emotionally intelligent members of the league. I really like. I like that's a good point. Yeah, I think. I hadn't really thought about too many of the side characters and you this <laughs> kind of brings up a good point that they're not just they're not just stock they're not just disposable to in, yeah. in the story which is it, it's really nice. They are very distinct. Like Tony was always my favorite. A because the actor the 1982 version is very good looking. His character in the book is really fun because he's like this like jolly, merry guy who just is like happy all the time. He's not happy all the time, but he has this persona of being happy all the time. And everyone just likes to be around him and he's not too smart. <laughs> uh, like he is smarter, but like everyone's like, ah, he's not smart enough to be like annoying. <laughs> like he's just this really cute character. Um so I, I really enjoy him. One of the books is about his romance, which I didn't read for a long time. So I was like, no, as long as I don't read it, Tony is single. And I can imagine myself <laughs> Tony, which is stupid. But uh, it's so a relatable. Fictional, <laughs> a fictional side character. Um, but, you know, you can't have Percy because he's taken. But Tony, uh, but he gets married in one of the books. Um, so then I, I relegated myself to uh, Timothy Hastings because he never gets married. And things. So I was like, all right, Timothy's single. He's, he's my guy. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the least personable character in all the books. I don't think we get very much of Timothy Hastings, but he's got a nice name, so that's good. <laughs> uh, we all do that with fictional characters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, I wanted to say something about the music in the 80s version. Um, there's a few key moments, like when Ian McKellen finds the earring in the library, yeah. Uh, and realizes Marguerite has been there. The music just goes bananas, and it it totally <laughs> works. Yeah, the music the is not amazing. It's amazing, and it's not subtle in any way. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you can do that when the music is not substituting for poor writing or bad acting, because mm. you have all of that already in the film. So the music is just this extra punch. Like in the scene when yeah. Marguerite realizes that Percy is the Scarlet Pimpernel. Oh. It's okay. not just only a full orchestra, but there's a literal <laughs> bell going off. Like, the music <laughs> is always the most. <laughs> so true. And, like, different characters have, like, theme songs, which is a common thing. But it's still, like, the wedding song that Marguerite and Percy dance to comes up in different moments whenever, like, she and Percy are having, like, a tender moment. I, it's just in so many movies... Like, I, I don't see this working. I don't see... I would probably have said, like, oh, my God, the music's so annoying. It's too much. Like, please make it stop. And for some reason in this film, it's, I'm just so here for it. I'm like, let's Correct. do this. <laughs> Agreed. Oh, I'm so just, glad you like the soundtrack. It's so good. Oh, and it's, it's ridiculous. The, the 1930s version, I don't think, has any kind of soundtrack, which isn't abnormal for the 30s, but it's not like they couldn't do soundtracks back then. If they just didn't for that one. So it's a very notable difference i think yes that is true i have a lot to say about the dressing room scene and i'm just gonna go through what happens okay. for listeners who haven't seen this in a while so ian mckellen as the villain tries to seduce marguerite she tells him that his methods have gone too far and that she's frightened of him we get his jealousy and motivation for implicating her in the murder of the marquis de saint cyr he storms out 
And then Sir, Sir Percy stands at the door with that harpsichord music cue for his <laughs> entrance. <laughs> and then Chauvelin, upon seeing him, gets even more mad because Sir Percy keeps, quote-unquote, accidentally blocking his way. So not the scene goes through so many emotions and so many things happen. It goes from scary to dramatic to funny. And then it's romantic because Marguerite and Percy are reunited. And just this whole set piece of a scene accomplishes so much. Yeah. Like, it's brilliant. It's, I think it's one of the best written scenes in the, in the whole show. Yeah, I would agree. It's, it's so good. And it's, it's another, like, because it's in the courtship period, it's not in the books at all. It's very much uh, just made for that particular movie. Um, and it's, it's interesting because it's the dressing room where it's located. It's a very vulnerable space mm, for Margaret. That's so um, true. So it's it's an interesting place to set all these different moments of her and Chauvelin having kind of a falling out because it's hinted that they're lovers kind of prior to Percy coming in in the movie. Um, that's not a thing in the book, but um, in the movie, it's kind of hinted that they were romantically together. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's like that's a very intimate space. And he's there while she's changing clothes. It's, it's a very good scene. And like the the proposals in that scene too which is also a really good a pretty cool proposal as far as proposals go yeah <laughs> i hadn't even thought about that vulnerability and him being one of her suitors and then they kind of have this realization where he's like 100 percent committed to his cause and she's starting to realize that this idealized version of the government is really not the reality that she was mm -hmm. hoping for so yeah you're right about that um, do you have any other scenes that stick out to you that you want to talk uh, about? In the oh yes, uh, the library scene is another one that they tweak from the original. Marguerite gets a note for Chauvelin and sends gives it to him to or tells him what's on it so that way he knows the subcomponel is going to be in this room at this time mm -hmm. at the fall so that way Chauvelin can go and catch him. And in the book, that's kind of just how it is. She sort of. She doesn't really confide it to Percy later, but she asks him for his help after the fact. But in the 1982 version, she goes to warn him, which is a really cool change, I think, um, because it really does show that she was actually like a good, I mean, we know that she's a good person, but she has like this nobility to her as well um, that makes them for kind of a good match for Percy that she would risk her own safety in order to go and warn this guy's just no. And so I, I love it because she's able to be honest with him and they haven't been able to be honest with each other mm -hmm. since they were married. And so it's this really beautiful moment where she they're talking and he can see her, but she isn't looking at him. And so I just love that scene where there's this openness and this honesty and he's able to see that she was trustworthy all along and he's able to learn all about the whole like sincere plot advice he's able to hear it from her perspective for the first time which quick note the way that they change it in every single adaptation boggles my mind because in the book she is actually responsible for Saint-Cyr's death where she like makes a like basically rats him out kind of flippantly and then doesn't realize that he's going to be executed and so then she tries to save him but fails and in the 1982 version she's framed for having um, betrayed him, but she doesn't betray him. And in the 30s version, she 
also does it, but the reasoning is very different. It's not because of Armand, it's because of herself that she was in love with Sassir's son. Mm-hmm. And then Sassir like sends her to prison. So it's like this very weird thing. They tweak it every time because no one seems to be able to <laughs> like the original version of the story. But um, in the 82 version, the library scene is one of my favorites because, I, and I love the part where he puts his hand on her shoulder so she can kind of know that he's really there, but it's the hand with his ring on it. Yeah. The only like misses of the movie in my mind is that she doesn't have a moment of connecting, feeling the ring and seeing who recognizing his identity. But like, I think it's such a cool moment of trust that he knows that she could figure it out in that moment who he is. And so he's revealing himself to her in that moment, even though he's told her not to turn around and look at him, but he's, giving her a hand with the ring that she would have potentially recognized just yeah. by touching it. It's not, until, it's not until she comes home and she kind of sees um, yes. a portrait on the wall of, I think, is it him or one of his ancestors in the same ring is on there and then yeah. he, she sees the the flowers everywhere. I'm wondering if yes. they make that change because we see the conflict with Sancier playing out in the in the film. And I think mm-hmm. in the book, it happens much earlier, um, not just in their courtship, but also in the reign of terror. So it would make yeah. sense that she didn't realize that him and his whole family would be executed. Yes. Right. Um, but also in the in the 80s version, when Percy finds out on his wedding day that the woman he loves was responsible for the death of the whole family, th- that is also one of my absolute favorite scenes. It's oh, so, so heartbreaking. Oh, and and he breaks his, his fake persona and asks all of them, even the children, in his normal voice. And it's yeah. like, oh, my God, you can just feel it. It's so heart-wrenching. And he tells his one of his men that his wife can no longer be trusted. And it, it's just like, man, all this happening on your wedding day and you love this woman. And then you're like, oh, she's also kind of a bad guy. Like, it creates yeah. great tension. Oh, it's so it's, it's like the Baron de Bats, I think, in the books is kind of a I don't remember him being a very noteworthy character. Um, and he's I hate him in that movie because of like, why? Why would you do that? Why would you go up to a guy on his wedding day to be like, hey, fun fact, your wife is a murderer. Like, that's not the time to do that. <laughs> and it's like so terrible that he does that. And I hate the Baron. De ba- and like, also, he was friends with her. Like, he was supposedly friends with Marguerite. So like, granted, he's devastated that his friends were murdered because of her. But like. It's terrible that he would do that and completely destroy both of their lives on their wedding day. Is just, he's the Baron de Bats is the true villain. <laughs> it's like so bad. I really hate him in that movie. <laughs> Another scene. I, this is just going to be me talking about all my favorite scenes. I have. Like, sorry, but I have, I have some more too. So I can't wait. <laughs> it's the one in the prison when Chauvelin finally arrests Percy and Marguerite comes to visit him. They're finally reunited and they just stand there looking at one another for so long until Percy slightly raises his hand and they rush towards one another. And it's not just that moment with the music swelling that's so good, but also Chauvelin kind of looks through the prison door yeah, and you can feel that he he's won, like he's got both of them. He's going to kill them, but still he's like consumed with jealousy and he does. He's never going to have the love that these two people have for one another. Yes. It's my favorite, too. It's one of my favorite kissing scenes in any movie because it's so passionate but also so tender. And they fit together so beautifully. And the music's so good. I just love it so, so much. And, like, the way it's framed with the – there's, like, no light in the prison except for mm. through the window. It's, it's beautiful. It's such a good scene. 
<laughs> oh, I'm so glad that was on your list because it's one of my favorite scenes too. <laughs> I like. I think I cried watching it. <laughs> so good, and they're both so good. They have really good chemistry together. Both those actors. It's it's beautiful. Yes, it's interesting because, like you said, it is very insta love. They kind of go on this picnic. There's not a lot of dialogue between them, and Percy acts this part right. He's he's mm -hmm. this fake guy who's obsessed with fashion, and she's like, "Oh, there's something in you. I see it." So it really, really helps that these two actors have so much chemistry that you mm -hmm. don't need to do that much more for us to believe that that you yeah. know they're lovers. Yeah, absolutely agreed. One of my favorite moments of their courtship is the scene at her like little soiree. I mean, it, again, insta love is not my favorite trope, but um, the the pickup line essentially of Percy telling her that he wants to know everything about her in every detail, but very slowly, so it takes a very long time. It's such a <laughs> sweet way to be like, I want to hear everything, spare no details. It's just romantic. I absolutely love that. <laughs> And in that scene, too, of course, there's the famous cravat scene where <laughs> Percy tells Ian <laughs> McKellen that, you know, French people don't know anything about fashion and, like, your tailors are garbage. And also at the end of the movie when he's like, oh, you didn't realize that all these soldiers have really ill-fitting clothes because it's my men wearing the uniforms? Like, see right. what I told you. See, you don't know anything about fashion. Yeah, that's so great. <laughs> and, like, there's a... Uh, throughout the movie, every time Ian McKellen's character, every time Shavuot sees Percy after that scene, he touches his cravat yes. in this like subconscious move, and it's so great. Like the part where he in the library, he sees Percy sleeping there, and he hasn't connected the dots that Percy was coming from quite yet. Um, but Percy's asleep, and Shavuot like fixes his cravat. Like, oh god, <laughs> I can't have this guy waking up and criticizing. It's just. It's phenomenal. I love it every time. <laughs> I had written that down as one of my favorite details because, as you said, it's it's subconscious, right? It's it's the influence of Percy that even though, you know, Chauvelin knows he's smarter, he's more cunning, he's clever, this Englishman is just, like, such a shallow fop, yet he can't help but feel insecure about it. And you know it's yeah. not subconscious. It's an actor playing a role. It's obviously Ian McKellen yeah. making a choice to do this. And I love it when actors can communicate so much without dialogue. Yes, it's so great. Uh, with the, the whole, like, you know, the cravat thread throughout the movie is the final duel scene um, where <laughs> Percy insults Chauvelin one final time by stripping him completely of it. It's like first up with, I think, I think he first does the coat, but uh, like the, one of the first things he takes off is the cravat of like, look, I'll take care of it for you. This is so terrible. <laughs> I'm just going to destroy it right now. Um, uh, also very probably homoerotic scene of him stripping his enemy in front of people. But um. <laughs> But it is a great fight scene where he, like, Percy could kill him, like, five or six different times, but instead just chooses to insult him. Uh, he just slowly. mocks him. Oh, it's so frustrating. It's like, we're not on Chauvelin's side, right? But every time we're like, oh my god, I'd be so mad too. Like, you know, it's so awful. <laughs> I did discover recent last night. Just whatever. I discovered after I posted a bunch of stories because I was rewatching the movie last night in preparation for this. And um, somebody discovered my Instagram because of I posted about Scott Brunel. And huh. then I was watching through his stories and he shared some artwork for this artist who has a whole bunch of art of basically Percy and Chauvelin as a couple. 
<laughs> and, it was very, and I'm like, I would read that. I would read the, uh, and I think Mark reads in there too. So it's not like they're uh, one or the other thing. It's like, a, what if all three of them <laughs> actually made it work? I'm like this, I would read that book. <laughs> the tension's there. The sexual energy. <laughs> Chauvin's complete and utter obsession with Percy throughout, like not just this book, but just throughout the series. He is absolutely obsessed with Percy. The point where it really doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to assume that he was completely in love with him. <laughs> we did prove that he was better or something. I don't know. But it's just like, it's pretty wild how much Percy's mere existence consumes Chauvelin's entire being. <laughs> did you have any other notes? I kind of went through all of mine. Any other points of interest? Okay. Uh, I'm trying to look through my... Oh, one thing that's in the book that isn't in any of the movies, um, but it's a great, it's a great moment in the book, is um, the pepper pot snuff box scene where Percy escapes from Chauvelin. They're talking, and he escapes from him by dumping the contents of a pepper thing, pepper pot, into um, his snuff box and offers it to Chauvin, who takes it without really thinking, and inhales a whole bunch of pepper and has a sneezing fit. <laughs> That's how Percy gets away. It's one of my favorite getaway moments in the entire series because it's so random and so simple, but also just very funny. Also, snuff is disgusting. But, like, <laughs> like I'm going to take this random, like, character trait and just turn it into a plot point is brilliant it's also okay so another one of the sequels percy it's another weird one called um the way of the skull pimpernel and in it chauvelin pretends to be the skull pimpernel to somebody else um because he's trying to use her and get to some people and so he is pretending to be the pimpernel this whole time and she believes when she's trusting him and she's like leading him to these like refugees or whatever and at one point they're both sitting in this tavern and I think it's all from her perspective. And so she's like watching Chauvelin in the middle of the room and like she's feeling better because he's in the room with her somewhere. And this sailor, this very tall sailor walks up to <laughs> Chauvelin and puts a pepper pot in front of him and Chauvelin like freaks out <laughs> because he realizes who it is. And like there's no dialogue. It's just like this moment the sailor walks up, puts pepper in front of him and walks away. <laughs> Chauvelin's like, oh my God, he's here. <laughs> and it's such a great nod to the first book without any words. It's beautiful uh, <laughs> i love that thanks love for it. sharing that it's so silly but that's you know i think that's also the tone of the book right it, it doesn't really take itself too seriously no no and i think the the whole poem that he does in the book that comes up a few times in the series like one time that's his kind of he gets away because he's supposed to write a letter to the french government saying that he's actually a spy and it's like going to completely ruin his reputation and he's like somehow does like a bait and switch at the last second and sends the courier off to Paris with his poem. <laughs> and so the courier is going to show up to Rumspear and hand him a poem about Scott Brunel. And like, it's, <laughs> it's phenomenal. It's very silly, but they're, they're so, despite the fact that they're about the French Revolution and there's a whole bunch of passages about torture and execution, they're very fluffy books yeah. despite that. And it's pretty remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> Any Anything else? Any other things? Uh, okay, I have two more thoughts. Uh, okay, so one of them is something that I don't love about the author's writing style is it's very much a, a product of her time period, but all of her descriptions for Marguerite are so frustrating because it's like her tiny, dainty little feet, and she's so delicate and small, and she had this childlike eagerness, and I'm like, can we 
And like Percy is this tall, broad, muscular man who's like superhuman strength. And it's just outrageous. And she does it all the time where like Marguerite's so like petite and little and wee and tiny little helpless woman. And it's just drives me. I've, I, I come, I've come across that a few times recently in some of the classics I'm reading. And every time like a grown woman is uh, described as childlike in like a, a hot way. Wilkie Collins does this a lot too. Like, oh, isn't she just so sexy? She's so childlike. And I'm like, like full body shudder. Like, <laughs> hate it. Hate it's it. terrible. And she's like 25. It's not even like she's like... I mean, she's young, like 25 is definitely not old or anything, but it's not even like it's the 30s and they're like, ah, she's 16 and she's married. She's 25. <laughs> she's a grown ass woman and she's a uh, childlike eyes. And I'm like, ugh, I hate it. I hate it so much. Uh, I kind of had just it. glossed over that while reading it. So I'm glad that you're actually bringing it up. <laughs> it's a problem that the author has throughout the books, honestly, is this idea that beauty equals goodness for the most part does occasionally there's there's a difference but uh, for the most part if someone is described attractively they are a good person in the book series and if they're described as anything other than conventionally attractive um or if they're disabled at all they are probably not a oh. good character mm. it's terrible it's very ableist and very shitty and she does it Several times, and like not, there's one character who winds up being good in the end and has a redemption arc, and and she's um, and and that one was was one of the characters who was disabled, but like it is still a very old fashioned and not in a good way <laughs> way of writing um, characters. That's it's very predictable. So if you ever do read the series, that if you ever read a character who's like the man is very handsome, the woman's very beautiful, they're they're the good guys <laughs> probably. Um, <laughs> so that part that part's not. Not great. That is um, good to know. Yeah. What yeah, was it? Oh, I was just gonna say. Uh, what was I gonna say? Oh, just the um, the trope of Percy of, of a very very smart character pretending to be stupid. Which first off is the Percy is the first superhero written because he has a secret identity and he's saving people through a secret identity, but in public he's has a very different persona. His fake persona, like hiding this massively intelligent character, is um, my jam. <laughs> and it it's very like I think I read this book and watched the movies at a very uh, formative part of my life because it has definitely like influenced other loves for characters where I'll tell my sister, oh, this character is so great because blah, blah, blah. She's like, it's just the Percy thing. You just, it, you, you. <laughs> like, every time there's a guy who like, there's a, a book series by Diana Wynne Jones called the Crestomancy Chronicles. And that character, the Crestomancy character is very, very intelligent. But every time he looks like he's not paying attention, it means he's focused on what they're, he's listening, he's hearing or what he's seeing. And I was like, oh, it's so hot. And my sister's like, it's Percy. I'm like, damn it. <laughs> it is. <laughs> like, uh, Gail Carriger has a character um, named Lord Akeldama. He's this vampire and he's outrageous. And everyone underestimates him because he's so outrageous. But he's also like the oldest character in the series. And he's the, the, wise, the smartest character in the series. And he's always like two steps ahead of everyone else. And I was like, oh, he's such a great character. It's Percy. It's the Percy complex. I just, I'm completely obsessed with these guys who are secretly way more intelligent than you think. I don't know what it is. I just love that. <laughs> I'll have to check those books out. I hadn't, I hadn't heard of either one of those. 
Oh, the Gale character has a whole Parasol verse series. Um, and the first series is called um, Finishing School. And it's about these, it's like a steampunk, uh, paranormal Victorian England kind of a time frame. And, um, Finishing School is these girls go to this school to learn to be assassins and spies, um, and finish everything. <laughs> um, and then the second series is about a, a woman who, um, basically cancels out the supernatural power of vampires and werewolves. Um, and then the third series is about her daughter. So they're, it's a great series. It's very, very fun. So highly mm. recommend. Mm. Thank you for that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay, one last thing is in the 30s version, which I would argue is probably a less good version of the modern uh, terms of adaptations. But um, one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie is when he comes into the the tavern at the end, and he and Chauvelin have their final, you know, standoff moment, and. He's telling Chauvelin, like, oh, well, I could totally escape. Here are all the ways I could escape. And one of his lines is, like, well, I don't have to run away because one of my friends might shoot you from behind, hidden in that clock. And Chauvelin turns around and it's this teeny tiny little clock. <laughs> and he's, like, all alarmed. And Percy's like, oh, come now. No one really hides in a clock. And it's, like, this really great like, play on his own character that, like, it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It's, the whole movie isn't super great because it's very wacky. It's good. It's a good movie. And it's on HBO Max if you have that, so it's fun. But um, that's my favorite scene in the whole movie is the no one really hides in a clock. But um, <laughs> I think that was my last note. <laughs> that, that film, I was actually really surprised how much I enjoyed it. And I mean, it's the template for so many things in the 80s version. I think there's mm -hmm. some slow moments in that. Um, but the the dialogue and how snappy it is, and also the yeah. cravat scene where where Percy just fixes Chauvelin's cravat and Chauvelin's so taken aback because it's such an invasion of personal space. Yeah. There's a lot of really great like up close moments. And, and yeah. it's very snappy. I would recommend watching it. Yeah, sorry, I, I don't mean to disparage the movie. It is very fun. And, like, the a lot of the snappy dialogue with the, who, sir, me, sir, you, sir, what? And, like, all that throughout the movie is, is so fun every time. <laughs> oh, my God, there's a scene where he's he's disguised as a as a soldier, and he's in, and they're talking about being in love, and he's like, I am in love with my wife. Like, it, it's so, <laughs> it's so, like cheesy and cute yeah. and also like he makes it seem like he's cheating on his wife and he's like nah I just really I just really love my wife like I just have to tell everyone how much I love my wife it's so cute <laughs> I know great. but yeah you're right that there I mean when compared to like modern filmmaking techniques and how you present information and a story it's still it's made in the 30s so yeah there's there's gonna yeah, be some outdated I stuff I do love old movies, so I I don't hate old movies, but it's a uh, but that one has a lot of there's some weird like the flow of it isn't the always super yeah, the flow it's it's it can have it has moments like you said that are very slow and kind of boring and I'm like why is this scene even in here and then there are some scenes that are super great but they're kind of hidden in these other like kind of weird moments so like it it is very good but it's uh it's got some it, it's got a weird. Uh, a weird flow to it that makes it harder for a rewatch for me. For some I reason. think the pacing that was most odd is when <laughs> Chauvelin finds Percy sleeping in the library and then we have to wait for time to pass and Chauvelin falls asleep and for some reason we need to watch the entire like 15 <laughs> minutes of them sleeping there and I'm like okay I'm just gonna turn up the speed here like I don't know yeah. what's happening. It's so, yeah it's very <laughs> silly. Uh, yeah so like the third one has some really really great moments in it and like Leslie Howard is phenomenal as Percy like the whole part where he's like 
his eyelids droop and his his voice goes up and he's he's very very good at the the switching between personas part and Merle Oberon is gorgeous so like she's a very like beautiful Marguerite and everything so I really love love and they have good chemistry together too yeah but um, but I mean I, I watched the 82 version first so even though it steals a lot from the third like even the the painting like at the very beginning of the movie where Percy walks in and Marguerite's being painted sitting for a portrait and like they have like some lines from that scene in the 82 version and so it's like it definitely steals from it but I love the 82 version so much that I it all the other versions pale by comparison (laughs) um but yeah I totally agree with you I think that's is that (laughs) it did we mention everything we loved about we both gushed a lot and we did point out some of the problems with the book which is good um but definitely I recommend if you haven't read Scott Pumpernel I definitely recommend it know going into it that it's definitely a lot of it does not hold up but it is still a very fun story about mutual pining and marriage in distress and second chance romance and adventure nonsense and it's a very good time it's it's a romp (laughs) yeah it's a good time (laughs) yeah thank you for suggesting this one i didn't even know what a pimpernel was i had to look up that it was a flower so (laughs) i was not familiar with this at all um but where can people find you online and what have you been up to so um, I am a writer. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Sarah Wallace Writer, um, and also online my website at sarahwallacewriter.com. Um, I write queer historical fantasy romance. My stories are set in a, a fantasy world where magic is real and um, society is queer normative, and no one really blinks that's an eye at men courting other men or women marrying other women, non-binary people are thriving and accepted in society. Trans people have a very easy time coming out as trans. So it is definitely escapist fiction, <laughs> um, but they are fantasy Regency stories. The first book is called Letters to Half Moon Street. It came out in February. Um, this is available on all platforms. I recently launched a newsletter, um, and subscribers of the newsletter get a free sapphic novelette romance. So I've got another story that I'm working on that I'm planning to release in early November. Um, so I'm very excited about that. So there's a whole series coming up. Oh, that's that's good to know. I'm, uh, it's also available in audiobook. That's the way mm-hmm. I uh, listen to it. And the narrator is also really, really amazing. You lucked He's out right. with that. Yeah. I- I, funny thing with him, actually, I met him on the Turner Classic Movie Cruise, <laughs> him and his wife, <laughs> and became friends. They're actors um, at, like, the Kentucky Shakespeare Theater, um, and ah. we've just kept in touch ever since. And so he noticed my, my thing on Facebook. I posted about, like, a call for audiobook narrators, and he auditioned, and he was phenomenal. So he's great. Oh, my gosh. You have, like, a whole backstory there. That's fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, he's really cool. I think something that also really struck me is before we did this podcast, you were like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm just a fan. I'm not an expert. Do I have to be an expert? And which you are an expert on this. So I don't know why you asked me that. Uh, And also, I've read so many, I think when you're in the romance genre, you read so many historical romances as well. Um, And there's definitely a few I've read that are so 
over the top that it'll take me out of it because it does not feel rooted at all mm -hmm. um, in the time period. And I never once had that feeling reading your book. Thank you. Um, and it was so anchored in, in the time period, even though all the things you just said, it, it, it has magic, you know, it has queer rights, it has all these things yet. Balancing that, I thought, was um, just so well done in the book. I, I really love that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm still working on researching stuff. And there are a lot of things I kind of dismiss that would be more realistic because it's not convenient for me. <laughs> um, so uh, there there are things that I, I don't add, even though I should. But And I have a friend who, who knows more about Regency periods that I will randomly text her and be like, can you tell me about mourning periods in the Regency? <laughs> she's like, oh, well. So she goes with this whole thing. But um, so I, I feel like she's more of an expert than I am on the time period, but uh, I do love it. And I've been trying to read up on it so I can have, come at it with a more, I don't know, contextual sort of approach. Can I ask you another question about your books? Yes, please. please. <laughs> is, your, is your protagonist on the asexual spectrum? Yes, he is. He's demisexual. Ah, it's, so glad you that. it's so funny to me because I don't really... Like, I know being ace, like, means I'm part of the queer community, but I don't really, like, insert myself or identify with that. I've never experienced any kind of negative reaction to that, and I know a lot of ace people have. And so I was yeah. like, oh, I don't really care about this. But then as soon as I recognize somebody like me in a book, I'm, like, so ecstatic. And it's it was yeah. just one of those moments when I'm like, oh, yes, representation does matter and you don't know how much it matters until you kind of encounter it if that makes sense so yes. that i really love that <laughs> oh, thank you so much that makes me so happy i i'm demisexual as well so the the scene the kissing scene where he's going on about how he he's never seen somebody and imagined what it'd be like to kiss them was basically me writing out my own thoughts on kissing because it wasn't until i was like in my 30s that i was like you know i've never had that <laughs> where like characters are always like looking at people's lips and then imagining what it'd be like and i've never looked at someone and been like huh how would it be i never have that but like, mental leap and so i decided to give gavin that moment and an early beta reader was like is he demisexual am i he is i didn't even realize <laughs> intentional but uh <laughs> Uh, but yes, he is demisexual. Um, so thank you so much for catching that. I really appreciate it. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for answering all my questions and being on the podcast um, and making me read The Scarlet Pimpernel. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This was so great. Faith, for one thing, it does seem monstrous ill-dressed for any society, even a new one. Think me, your tailors have betrayed you. Betrayed us? We pride ourselves on our French tailors. Odds fish, my dear fellow. Such shoddy workmanship would not be tolerated in London for one tiny instant. Look you here, sir, at this limp cravat. I ask you, or the sorry cut of this sleeve. No, no, no. Or the sad state of those cuffs. Think me, I can hardly bring myself to look upon them. No, 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 sir. If this is the best your tailors can do, it would serve you better to send them to the guillotine. We shall send our king instead, sir, and exalt our tailors. More's the pity. Then your tailors will rule the land, and no one will make the clothes. So much for French fashion and French politics. What is it you Frenchies say? To Shay? You see, I'm a bit of a poet, and you did not know it, what? <laughs>